0: Welcome back to the Para Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today I am really excited to have with us Sam Gardner. Sam is the senior strength and conditioning coach for the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee on the Paralympic side and he's based in Colorado Springs and works with a bunch of para-athletes. So welcome to the podcast, Sam.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Liz. Always Always a pleasure to catch up.
0: Yeah, well, I'm glad that we finally pinned you down. Uh, so, Sam, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you got into being a strength and conditioning coach with Paralympic?
1: Yeah, no, happy to. It's kind of a kind of a long road for a short period of time. It seems like to me sometimes. <laughs> so, I, I grew up playing basketball and really wasn't that great of an athlete. Always enjoyed training and and athletic development and physical preparation so you know me getting into college and playing basketball at university here in the United States part of the reason I was able to is because uh, of my passion for strength and conditioning you know I started off studying movement sciences and thought I might be a phys ed teacher and coach the sport of basketball initially and throughout my studies I just kind of realized that there was this whole uh, strength and conditioning Role within the collegiate universities and was really interested mm-hmm. in that. So spent a lot of time kind of transitioning. Uh, still finished with a teaching degree in physical education, and little did I know that that would actually play into my my work as a mm-hmm. Paralympic specialist because part of my rotation was working with adaptive sport athletes and working with athletes in adapted physical education more specifically. Um, so that right. that was kind of a, hit, a hidden blessing. So, yeah, kind of looking at it quad to quad, that quad was uh, undergrad. And as I moved on, I I started working at a place called Velocity Sports Performance. Uh, I volunteered and got hired on as a coach and was an assistant coach and then the head coach and then the director of the facility uh, all within a two-year stint. You know, I knew enough to know I didn't know anything. Uh, (laughs) I was not (laughs) qualified to be a director of my own facility and, and running all these programs for for kids as young as seven years old and all the way through professional sporting athletes we worked with and the whole premise there was mm. to teach teach athletes how to become faster so it's a lot more movement coaching than it was just in the weight room and i really enjoyed that working on speed mechanics acceleration change the direction things like that and just coaching you know youth athletes you know again as young as seven and you know, all the way through junior high and high school and, and professional, I think it was a great experience for me because I was just on the floor coaching all day and coaching a variety of mm. athletes uh, at a variety of ages. So that was a, a great experience for me. Yeah, as I said, would enough to knew I didn't, didn't know what I was talking about. So I wanted to pursue a master's degree and was hoping to leave Massachusetts because I'd spent my, at that point, 23 years of my life in the state and was hoping to kind of branch out. But, uh, Bridgewater State University, right down the road, actually offered me a GA and TA, was basically going to cover my my studies, so uh, state stayed, <laughs> stayed in state, and it was a, a great decision because I had another great mentor who took me under her wing, Dr. Ellen Robinson, and uh, was able to be her teacher assistant, be a graduate assistant, and work more in the sport of weightlifting on our, in our club program, which was great for me to learn more about the movements and become a better coach of weightlifting derivatives and movements. So I was mm-hmm. still working at Velocity Sport Performance, working as a GA, working as a TA, and I was ho- volunteering at Harvard <laughs> University in their athletics program. And on my one day off, I was a personal trainer uh, for MIT professors as well as uh, Harvard lawyers. So that was... So we've uh, already col-
0: worked out that you're a type A personality who <laughs> is willing to work your butt off. <laughs> so that was good to lead into working for the USOPC.
1: Uh, yeah, well, I don't know. I, I just, you know, have this have this burning passion. I just wanted more and more and was excited to learn and have all these different experiences. And yeah, um, luckily I had a lot of great people who, who took me under their wing and all those different facilities. And at the end of it all, around 2010, I was applying for different jobs, I had finished my most of my graduate studies and was on my way to head down to Baylor University to work as, a, as an intern with their football program. And in the meantime, I got a call from the USOC at the time and it was a position I had applied for, for the internship role, to come here and work at the Colorado Springs Olympic Training Center. And they called me, and I'd already accepted another role, and they, they were hoping to set up an interview. And I said, well, how about right now? So I had nothing to lose, really. And a week later, I was offered the role. So now I had a decision to make, and I'm glad I made the move to Colorado Springs. I think it was the right fit. I don't know that working in collegiate football was going to be the best fit for me and my personality and my lifestyle. So came out to Colorado Springs in 2010. Again, they couldn't get rid of me. At the end of my internship, I was offered the ability to head out to Chula Vista, which at the time was something that human resources hadn't really allowed in the past. And so I spent four months here in Colorado Springs and spent another nearly four months out in Chula Vista working with track and field athletes out there. And at the end of all that, they created a role for me to come back as the first uh, dedicated fellow, which was supposed to be a one-year role. So I came back to Colorado Springs, 2011, and a year and a half later, I was still here because they couldn't get rid of me. <laughs> and uh, I, I uh, had been in chats with the Golden State Warriors through the lockout year the year before uh, in the NBA. Growing up playing basketball, the sport I was most passionate about that was always attractive to me. And I was offered a role to head out to santa cruz and oakland where they had acquired uh, a d-league team now it's the g-league at the time the d-league and they kind of have this new hybrid role i've always been really passionate about the developmental process of working with athletes i've worked with a lot of elite sporting athletes but i personally really enjoy working with athletes who haven't cracked into the elite scene i just feel like that's uh Mm -hmm. kind of something i i I really hang my hat on is, is helping athletes move to the next level and the the idea was just you know too good to be true. Um, I would be a, you know, assistant performance coach with the Golden State Warriors and kind of help run the athletic development program in Santa Cruz. The USSB mm. couldn't guarantee that I'd have a full time role the following year, so I headed out to California. Spent a year out there working professional basketball, had a lot of great, again, mentors and colleagues to learn from and bounce ideas off of. Had a had a really fantastic time. But it was kind of a year-to-year contract. Uh, In the meantime, Mm -hmm. I was fortunate to get recruited by 1st MSOP, 1st Marine Special Operation Battalion, uh, MARSOC, Marine Special Operation Command. It's a lot of alphabet soup there, but basically working with special forces operators out at Camp Pendleton, tier two tier government asset. So if you've heard of Navy SEALs or the Army Rangers, this was the same idea, but from, from the Marine sector, that either Naval's operators and or naval or marines could kind of chop off and see if they could make it through the through the rigors that that would allow them to be with Marsoc. so being out at first msob was another fantastic experience this time maybe less from a sports specificity standpoint but i think what i learned the most from there was was more about team culture and leadership just a okay. daily lesson in learning <laughs> what makes certain individuals better leaders, and a better lesson on teamwork. I think uh, more so than maybe just sports spec- sports specific programming and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really fantastic. Thirteen months later, I found out that the government hadn't actually approved the contract I had been working on. <laughs> so that left me uh, that left me in a, a bit of a bind. They were working to get back the contract in place and, and approved. But in the meantime, I'd interviewed other places and, and Jamie Myers, who I'd spent time with as an intern in 2010 out in Chula, he, he allowed me to come and volunteer down in Chula Vista, And I kind of really gravitated to working with the Paralympic athletes when I was in Chula, you know, a couple of years prior and really gravitated to it in Colorado Springs. So while I was there, I was, I was spending a lot of time working with the Paralympic athletes who were residents um, in Chula Vista back in 2014, mm-hmm. this would have been. And in the meantime, I, I had some offers to go back and work in college basketball and then MARSOC eventually got my contract back in place, but Yeah, I I got blessed with the opportunity to work as a contractor with yourself and and Matt Kramer in in this new initiative of creating a a high-performance support team or sport performance support team, just like we've had on the Olympic side for years within the USOC at the time, now geared more towards supporting and specializing in Paralympic sport. And I just thought that that was Mm -hmm. really exciting, uh, a fantastic opportunity. So I, I turned down those other opportunities to potentially make more money and work less hours. But I... I just had a passion. <laughs> I, I had a, yeah, yeah. I had a, I had a passion for working with these athletes. So I, I just thought that, that was that was too perfect. So I was lucky to to join you and in, in that and uh, kind of see this uh, a bit of a, a startup feel to it where now we have you know multiple full-time strength coaches, sport sport multiple sport dietitians, sport physiology support, sport, you know, mental skills support, sport psychology support, and none of this really existed. And, and, you know, I think yourself and Matt, and then the me, being a small piece added to that puzzle. I feel like we were kind of at the forefront of that. And part of what excites me now is, is seeing that movement grow and, and being uh, a bit of a coordinator of the SCC coaches on top of just coaching. So, Skipping ahead after uh, after Rio, right around 2018, you know, it was the idea of me coming back to Colorado Springs was offered and it was a good move for my wife and, and myself to come back for a full-time role instead of contract role, which mm-hmm. is kind of year to year. Uh, so I came back as, a, as the first ever full-time dedicated s coach for, for Paralympic sport as we transitioned from USOC to USOPC. And, you know, a lot of neat things went into place uh, at that time with Operation Gold, where Paralympic athletes were going to get offered the same stipend from the USOPC mm-hmm. as the Olympic athletes. Um, there was more, a little bit more funding, or it seemed that way that the resources were being kind of opened up a bit more for the Paralympic support of athletes. And yeah, it was just a real exciting time for me to come back to Colorado Springs. My wife working for USA Triathlon. Her headquarters were here. You know, it's been a good fit for myself and the family. So I've been back in Colorado Springs for four years now. My roles kind of shifted a little bit, where I still. I'm actively coaching every day, but I'm coaching a little less this year than I had in previous years and kind of helping to manage some of the the staff that we've grown out as we have an SNC fellow. Now we have a full-time assistant strength coach here in Colorado Springs, a full-time assistant strength coach out in Chula Vista. And the coaches are doing phenomenal work. And I've, I've just been kind of a small piece of the puzzle to try to help enable them to do that great work. Yeah. And through that process, I kind of went back to school and got two more master's certificates. And now I'm also a guest lecturer at a couple of universities. So that brings me to today. So just kind of quad to quad, uh, kind of look at it in those four-year chunks just because that seems to be how my life is broken down as well as the athletes' lives that I support. So, yeah, there are kind of four unique quads dating back to my yeah. 15 years of being paid to help athletes in the weight room.
0: You still continue to astound me, and you still don't really share with everyone just how Damn good you are. Like yeah, I think Sam, you you underplay your value way too much. Anyway, let's just say that Sam is the guru of strength and conditioning coaching in Paralympic sport and is also a a really nice guy. <laughs> really nice guy. And is just a madman because he keeps on getting degrees when he doesn't really need to. Anyway, we'll keep moving on. So can you give us an idea of which athletes you do work with at the moment and what their impairments are?
1: Yeah, no, and I I appreciate the kind words, Liz. Yeah, you know, this I'm kind of in a bit of a a rethinking moment here because – the last two years, there really weren't many options for SNC support because we, we had kind of lost some staff during COVID. And I was mm-hmm. on site basically working with anybody and everybody. So we're going through a little bit of a transition, but I can speak to it in general. Here in Colorado Springs, we have resident programs for swim, paratriathlon, cycling, which is comprised of both road and track athletes, some of which do both. But mm-hmm. now it's getting a lot more specialized. So it's kind of two separate programs in a way judo parachuting and athletes who compete in shooting not individuals who like to jump out of airplanes and then rotational programs (laughs) we have rotational programs that come here for short-term long-term stay for selection camps in the team sports setting for wheelchair rugby wheelchair men's and women's wheelchair basketball but also on my end uh, i work directly with nordic skiing and biathlon who are a remote program but kind of use this hub from time to time for pre and post post post-surgical visits and then out in chula vista obviously you know track and field being the the majority of the athletes we have in the paralympic side but also some presence within quad tennis as well as camp visits too yeah it's a great blessing to have worked with basically 17 of the 28 paralympic sports we have in the u.s at one point Mm -hmm. or another for for more than multi-month programming or implementation of programming so i've worked with again 17 of the sports over the last you know, thirteen years. Yep. In 2022, our SNC staff, and again for me, part of my my uh, kind of transitioning, uh, what I get really excited about is just kind of what we're doing as a team uh, within SNC, because it's not just me mm-hmm. working with one sport. Now it's it's multiple coaches bringing multiple ideas to the table and multiple levels of expertise um, that we can all mm-hmm. hopefully benefit from, and as a group heading into 2022, which again was a, a double games year for us, 2021, 2022, I should say we had 123 national team athletes representing team USA and 12 different sports that our SNC group worked with and mm. 61 individual medals were earned by those athletes, which is just crazy to me. And that's, not counting yeah. the team sport, like individual medals. So, if you actually added the relays or the, the team sport aspect to that, we're talking about nearly 103 athletes, hmm. and that was, you know, 78 percent of them came home with a medal. Of the athletes that we were programming and implementing programming for in the year and a half leading up to those those two games. So,
0: yeah, that's that's a phenomenal out, output.
1: Yeah. I, so, I've I've been able to work. You mentioned impairments, like I've I've worked with across all. Of the major impairment groups. Obviously, there's different mm-hmm. levels of classification within each sport based on each impairment and such forth. But yeah, I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time with with all, all those areas. And I think that's part of the reason why I've been so excited about working within Paralympic sport, you know, working with these different sports, but also working with the different impairments in each sport has kind of forced me and challenged me to try to be creative and, and not kind of rest on my laurels because every day is a new day and every athlete I meet has a new set of challenges that they're up against and mm-hmm. that's part of what gets me excited about supporting these athletes is I, I can't just kind of copy and paste one program a plan and, and send that out to a group of athletes I it's like I could but it wouldn't go well and it probably wouldn't be very efficient <laughs> so yeah that's that's kind of a long-winded Answer. I apologize for yeah. rambling, Liz, but yeah, no, I, it's car- all good. currently as of today, um, the sports I spend the most time hands-on supporting right now would be uh, athletes from triathlon, cycling, as well as dark ski and biathlon. Mm-hmm.
0: And so, how does your programming differ from how it would be with an able-bodied sport? Do you approach programming, obviously? It's highly individualized. You've already kind of indicated that. But are there any other differences in terms of how you program relative to how you would for an able-bodied program?
1: Yeah, there are differences. But I think there are a lot of similarities too. And I think at first, when I first started working as a Paralympic athlete, I focused more on the differences than the similarities, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I've kind of shifted a little bit over the years where it's like the process of analysis is still pretty much the same. There's just an extra layer to the onion. So for me, like step one is learning more about the sport itself. So we might consider that as a sporting demand analysis profile. So for me, that's a great opportunity to connect with the the sport coach as well as the support staff who know more about that sport than I do, as well as the athletes in that sport. You know, you can take a dive in the lit review and everything else, but there's not always a whole lot of substance there. It depends on what the sport is. And then for me, getting out to the sport, getting out to sport training or sport competition is just a great learning opportunity to learn more about what it is we're preparing athletes for. Within that, Mm -hmm. you know, there's medical considerations. So the sporting injury profiles, as well as the individual athlete's injury history that play into that Mm -hmm. area. And again, within that, then you have those pair of considerations as well. So like in the sporting demands analysis profile, you might know, like I thought I knew the sport of basketball, but that doesn't mean I understand wheelchair basketball, right? Mm -hmm. As one basic example. then within the the injury profiles, like I might understand that in the sport of wheelchair basketball, maybe shoulder injuries is of high risk or high prevalence. And then maybe an athlete that I might support or Katie might support that I might kind of work with. Maybe they have a, a history of something else around the shoulder injury. That's good to know on top of the sporting's needs. But then... On top of that, what is their specific impairment that may or may not be playing into that injury profile, or what is that specific impairment, you know, that we might need to consider from a physical preparation standpoint? From there, you know, yep. uh, hopefully once we know a little bit about the sport, know a little bit about the injury history of the sport, and the two big questions that I usually want to answer are what is the, the highest prevalence of injury in the sport, but what is also the injury that takes people out of the sport the longest? Because those are usually two different things. Mm. So yeah. once we get those questions answered, we might move into a trainability assessment where we take individual athletes through a bit of a movement screen. And that's something I've been trying to craft because there wasn't really one for Parasport you know, let's take mm-hmm. the functional movement screen, which is really common in able body sport, seven set standard movements. Well, I might work with a quad tennis athlete with a high location of spinal cord injury, and they might not be able to perform any of those seven movements. So mm-hmm. uh, for me, it was developing a kind of a multi-layered tiered system for active ranges of motion that we can get objective information on and quantify, as well as most commonly use programming movements that we might actually objectively quantify as a coach to understand how the athlete moves and where we might start within the training, the physical literacy of that athlete, figure out where we're going to start in that training journey with that individual. So that trainability assessment is something I've I've spent about seven years now, kind of scrapping a red penning. And then (laughs) luckily... (laughs) Luckily, now I have other coaches who also help with that in the given sports they support. And it's kind of crazy to see, whereas out in Chula, it might have just been me and maybe, you know, anywhere around a dozen to 20 track athletes going through that screen in any given year. And now we have, uh, I haven't looked into the database in a little while, but we actually have information from athletes in 12 different sports, and it's well over I think at this point, well over 600 screens. So wow. within that, we've tried to quantify a first and foremost, the athlete to themselves, but B the athlete to their sporting mates and C the impairment of which the athlete experiences compared to other sports with similar impairment profiles. So now we can try to start to take that information because we've kept the data clean and hopefully take that information and and not just look at the athlete in themselves, which is what I intended to do initially. But now that we actually quantify impairment group, impairment profile, impairment specific details, we can start to kind of dive a little deeper and look at athletes with similar impairments in different sports to kind of Inform our practice and our knowledge base within SNC. Mm-hmm. So from there, after trainability assessments, like a lot of coaches, they want to rush right to athletic assessments. To me, that that that's kind of the last step. <laughs> I want to make sure that the athlete's healthy. I want to make sure that the athlete. I understand how the athlete moves before I just throw them into a four screen or before I just throw them into mm-hmm. uh, on on field tests or assessment. Yeah. So that's kind of my my approach. And then within para sport, obviously, you know, I, if you if you look at somebody with let's say above the knee unilateral amputee, you know, like there's other considerations outside of just how they move, like energy expenditure, you know, it might be 70 Mm -hmm. to 75% higher prevalence of energy, energy expenditure for somebody above the knee. And somebody who who might be in the same sport using two two legs to propel themselves or use locomotion, similar sporting profile. The gait of the athlete, you know, if we're circumducting at the hip, because we don't have a knee and we don't have an ankle, then we should probably kind of consider that. And that might fall into the saddle, the bike fit, uh, and other areas as well. Uh, proprioception, if the athlete doesn't have a signal coming up from their foot because it's a blade, well balance mm-hmm. on that limb is going to be going to be a challenge, right? So little things like that. Um, pros- the prosthetic itself, you know, what can they train within that prosthetic? Is it better for them to come in in their running leg? Is it better for them to come in in their day leg? It, it depends on the athlete and the situation and what we're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. If, if it's, again, above the knee example, uh, the knee and ankle will be used, will, will it be used with a prosthesis, well, then we should probably Figure out how to train with that prosthesis, like uh, wh- mm-hmm. whatever their support team is around that. I should probably, hopefully, get get a conversation going to make sure that we understand what it is we're trying to achieve as a group. How did the injury mm-hmm. result? You know, was it amputation? Was it congenital? Was it vascular? Those are probably good things for me to understand as a coach. You know, special attention to stump care and discomfort. You know, if an athlete can't perform a leg press in that specific prosthetic. Well, you know, I probably shouldn't just force it on them because I need them to like press, Mm -hmm. you know, if if I'm going to create stump discomfort or stump potentially an actual burn site and cysts, that that can take them out of training for a very long period of time, which is the opposite of what I intend to do. So, yeah, yeah, you know, also in that one example of what say, about the amputee, how much work is going through their their sound or biological limb? Mm -hmm. Do I need to constantly overload it if if it's already being overloaded constantly in their sport, different considerations around that. Mm. So, I mean, each impairment would have different considerations as an city coach that you probably want to try to find answers to before you just hand out a plan and say, off you go.
0: Yeah. 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 And so, how much time do you spend with, say, sports medicine, for example, in terms of trying to work out some of those nuances, particularly when it comes to if someone has an injury? Is there a good interaction with sports medicine? Is that a key sort of component of the work that you do?
1: Yeah, it, I would say all the providers, it, it's important for me to try to be on the same page with. But on a day-to-day, I spend more time Communicating with sports medicine than maybe anybody outside the athlete or the sport coach. That's a daily check in mm-hmm. for me because, unfortunately, like within parasport, you know, we have injury and instances of, burden of illness reports that come out after every quad. And what we see is like the Paralympic athletes four to six times more likely to have a musculoskeletal injury than their able bodied counterparts in the same sport. And their Paralympic athletes are also mm-hmm. eight times more likely to experience a shoulder injury than their able bodied counterparts within the same sporting mm-hmm. profile. So, unfortunately, it's pretty rare that I don't have an athlete that doesn't have something going on. Mm. So me checking up Sports Medicine Daily is important. We also have weekly briefs where we do athlete rounds, you know, for any athlete who's either visiting and or lives and trains here in Colorado Springs. And those conversations are imperative, you know, going through the EHP, Lead Athlete Health Profile, as well as combining information from what I consider the trainability assessment. I think that's an important step to have both of those in place just to understand, you know, what is a healthy range of motion for this individual? Because impairments might mm-hmm. might uh, kind of change your perspective of what movement should be. If you only work with able-bodied athletes and, and you think, you know, this is how the hip works, but then you work with an athlete who, again, going back to that above the knee example of, of lower limb, let's say unilateral amputation. Well, if they're circumducting at the hip, that's, we, we might need to reconsider that. So like an athlete in track and field, over time, runners generally lose internal rotation of the hip in able body track. But in Paralympic track, over time, longitudinally, what we see is they lose external rotation of the hip. Now, if you don't understand that, you know, you might be missing a step or two along the way, something as simple as including mobility exercises into your warm-up or prep plan that that you may need to reemphasize what you've historically emphasized with the able body sport in Paralympic sport. And working with sports medicine, getting information around objective ranges of motion as well as for me, some of the force assessments I've collaborated with sports medicine to recreate for the Paralympic athlete, um, all that's really just critical information to help inform my practice. You know, ideally getting a profile for mm. the individual, not just the sport, can really help kind of inform what is most most important for the individual that I'm working with.
0: Mm. And would you say that you spend more time in the gym Supervising and, and overseeing from a from a safety perspective, or have you set up some procedures within the gym that ensure the safety of the athletes?
1: Yeah, I mean, safety is safety is critical. I think I think rule number one is is do no harm. You know, uh, our job is to help support them in their sport, and hopefully, everything we do doesn't take them away from that sport training. Mm-hmm. And it's the old. Piano analogy that other coaches have used before me, but you know, if you want to get good at the piano, I don't go buy a flute. And what I mean by that is like, (laughs) if I want to get good at piano, I need time playing the piano. So for me, a lot of what I do isn't just chasing key performance indicators that might translate the sport performance. It's helping try to set a safe environment, but also build a robust athlete for their sport so they can continue doing their sport at the intensities and volumes of which their sport coach demands of them to get better at that sport, AKA playing the piano more mm-hmm. often. So the safe environment. Yeah. It's, it's, it gets tricky. Cause like as you experienced in Chula, you know, we might have multiple coaches down at the track running multiple programs, And they all kind of want to use the weight room at the same time. And we're kind of experiencing that here Mm. in Colorado Springs where we have multiple sports come in at once. Luckily here, I have more than just myself. There's multiple coaches to help implement the the training sessions. But uh, ideally, yeah, I mean, the environment itself is, is key visually impaired athlete if it's somebody who's let's say a t11 or f11 in track and field you know making sure that we have someone around to help guide them through the process making sure that the weight room has open lanes you know i think the nsca's guidelines is three feet wide i we've tried to double that here in colorado springs so there's multiple lanes through the weight room that are six feet wide and that's great for athletes in let's say chairs athletes with day legs athletes with visual impairment canes and guide dogs making sure that there's wide open lanes through the weight room that that doesn't get cluttered that's consistent so that athletes know where they are and they know how many steps it is mm-hmm. from, from rack to dumbbells or from rack to bench. You know, me lining up the, the bench, let's say, two tiles back versus three tiles off the platform is a big difference to someone who can't see it. Mm-hmm. Um, so making sure I'm as consistent as possible with my setup and breakdown of equipment is, is, is probably a good idea. Having an athlete who's, who's new to the facility, let's say if they are visually impaired, taking them on a tour so they understand where things are, making sure that their first, you know, maybe month or first program at least, if you can, if there's somebody an extra set of hands around, just to make sure that they understand what they're doing. But for me, I'm, I'm all for trying to empower the athletes. That mm-hmm. doesn't always mean enable them, but empower them to be as independent as they possibly can be. Whatever it is they can mm-hmm. do on their own, I want to see them, have the confidence and comfort doing that on their own. And now not every athlete in parasport, like uh, let's say the 10K plates go up highest on the rack. Well, a sit-sport athlete yeah. might not be able to put away the 10K plates, but maybe they can put away the 15s and the 20s, right?
0: Yeah.
1: A visually impaired athlete, maybe maybe there's certain things that wouldn't be safe for that particular athlete to do, but whatever it is that is safe for them to do, mm-hmm. I want to empower them to make sure that they are doing whatever they can on their own. So for me, ideally, it's coaching, but yeah, setting up a, a safe training environment for me to coach the athlete so that they can express confidence in performance, You know, that's that's definitely a key and scheduling plays into that a big time because, you know, if I was working with a group of 15 basketball athletes in able bodied sport, I might just have them all come in at once. But if I have 20 wheelchair athletes, you know, maybe you need to stagger it if it's one coach. Maybe you need to have a wave system where every half hour, you know, five athletes come at a time. It really kind of mm-hmm. depends on the coach and their comfort level working with those athletes. And the longer you coach an athlete, hopefully the more independence they, they've they earned and, it's you know, kind mm-hmm. of have qualified for but initially, I feel like you have to really kind of keep safety at the forefront with a lot of these populations. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I think, you know, young strength and conditioning coaches probably feel pressured to get as many through the gym as they can and probably just need to take a breath and ensure that they've got something that they can feel comfortable managing and feel comfortable being able to observe and check on right from the word go rather than setting up a system that isn't really sustainable.
1: Yeah, I'll call myself out. It's the first time I was ever exposed to Paralympic sport. When I first came to the training center in 2010, that spring, I didn't know much at all about Paralympic sport. And one of the first sessions I was thrown right into the fire by one of my old mentors, Sean Carlock. He's working with judo, which at the time we trained both able-bodied and para-judo in the same group. And mm-hmm. there was an athlete with complete visual impairment, and it was, okay, here you go, teach them how to do a power clean. <laughs> and, huh? you know, so that, that was a real eye-opener to me, because you come in and, and maybe you have a bit more confidence as you're younger than than maybe you should have earned, <laughs> and I'm thinking I can mm-hmm. teach anybody how to uh, weightlifting derivatives because I've worked with athletes as young as eight all the way to, you know, 40 at the time. And, you know, here I am hot stuff. Well, mm-hmm. I had never coached somebody who can't see the movement before. So that was a great, great learning opportunity mm-hmm. for me. And the first time I guided that athlete uh, was the first time I guided anybody. And we were transitioning from the strength and power session in the weight room to a bit of a conditioning circuit out on the wrestling mats. And I walked the athlete barefoot through the cleaning solution by accident. I was so worried about... <gasps> Oh, no. I was worried. I was so worried about the the bikes, uh, you know. As we transitioned from the, the the clustered area into the open mat space, I avoided the bikes mm-hmm. by then putting the athlete's feet directly into the cleaning solution after they'd already taken their socks off. So I got called out and they gave me a real oh, hard time that. about that. And it was, <laughs> uh, you know, so like again, my confidence in coaching visually impaired athletes when I was thirteen years ago, twelve years ago, was was not super high. But now I might be able to handle multiple visually impaired athletes at once and, and expect to have a bit of a group session. Yeah.
0: And how do you manage athletes who don't have access to it? Like you said that you have a lot of athletes who are remote, like the Paranautic Ski team. What if they don't have access to someone to help them in the gym or they don't even have access to the gym? And, and this happened a lot during COVID. How do you manage that?
1: Yeah, I think you need to recalibrate expectations. I personally and more comfortable coaching athletes in person than I am in the the quote-unquote remote coach setting. I I think it can work well when you have a trusting relationship with an athlete versus just getting handed somebody who's now remote that you don't have a working relationship and trusting relationship with. Um, That's something I still struggle with. I think in -hmm. that setting of COVID, luckily a lot of the athletes that were now remote had been athletes I'd worked with in person. So if I had to pour a little water in the program, meaning not making it as complex as possible, making it something that they can facilitate on their own, I would choose that over the most perfect plan on paper that might be offering unnecessary risks to the athlete. So, Mm -hmm. you know, using equipment, great. But even just getting something in, especially those early days when we weren't sure how long we were going to be in this new setting or we didn't really know if the games were going to be pushed the year or not or canceled or there's just a lot of uncertainties, i much rather see an athlete do something and get it done safely than nothing and or then try to push Mm -hmm. the most uh, high means plan at them that they might not be able to perform safely on their own without supervision. Uh, Currently, like with the Nordic program, luckily, a lot of what I do with some of these programs is coach the coaches. Yeah. So yes, like I want to coach the athletes, but I need to coach the coaches too, because if I'm not there and there's gonna be somebody there who is supervising a session, I want them to at least understand the general philosophy of the plan, understand that it's okay to make modifications because I'm not there. I'd rather you put set an athlete up for success and make an adaptation or modification instead of wait a week to talk to me and then say, Hey, should we cross mm. this off and do that? Well, no, like I like let's talk through some of this. Like if there's a if there's the Uh, the overall stimulus and intent of what we're trying to accomplish. But I don't think anyone road leads to Rome and I don't think anyone exercise needs to be forced on anybody, Never mind within Paralympic sport. So making modifications, mm-hmm. making adaptations, empowering the coaches to understand that, Hey, this is what I'm looking for, but how we get there, I'm going to trust your judgment and we can talk about it and bounce ideas mm-hmm. off each other. But I'd much rather you step in and be a coach than a wallflower and just let things happen. So mm-hmm. I think that's imperative too. And it took me a little while to, to kind of shift mindsets there of not just trying to coach the athletes, but coach the staff in it's not always just the coaches, it might be a support staff member, it might be somebody within sport performance, so it's yep. going to be there, it might be a, a medical provider. And, you know, ideally, if we're working for Team USA, hopefully, we can work together as a team to, to get the program across versus just me worrying about anything specific, because it's on a sheet of paper that I designed.
0: Yeah, cool. And now how much influence do you think Nutrition has on your athletes achieving the results that they're working towards. Yeah, I think I think sport and you can you can be brief. You can be brief. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I think it's I think it's great. I think I think nutrition is imperative. I think fueling and refueling is obviously something that we look at. Obviously, you and I were I was fortunate to work with you for a number of years and looking at uh, body composition, looking at strength to power weight ratios, looking at all these different factors. But like if an athlete's not properly fueled the training's never gonna be it's never gonna be to the level of which that we as SSCs are, are hoping it can be. And if athletes not refueling mm-hmm. or rehydrating post training, then the next session is gonna be affected. So like it, it all hopefully plays hand in hand. The athlete's recovery, the athlete's preparation, how we feel, how we refuel, imperative. I think hydration is, it is talked about a lot, but it's something as simple as, as maybe the SNC coach collaborating with the sport dietitian and knowing that an athlete has a tendency to be dehydrated, well, then maybe I'm the, a bit of the water bottle police, you know, making sure that they at least show it to the weight mm-hmm. room with a water bottle. If it's something around body composition, if I know the specific goals and parameters of which have been set by the professional, which is the sport dietitian and not me as SNC. Hopefully, then I can help encourage and reinforce the message and, and check in with the mm-hmm. athletes. Because a lot of times, the way it's set up here, at least, a lot of times, SSC coaches, we might not see as many athletes as the sport dietitians might come across in, in a quarter, let's say, but we might see athletes in a specific sport profile more often. So sometimes our role can be to help reinforce mm-hmm. the message. As long as we know what the message is and the goal is, you know, hopefully we can be uh, a team player and, and try to make sure that the athletes are yes. having a bit of a checkpoint with us so that they just don't go two months without meeting their goals and expectations. And I, I, yeah. I think too, like, you know, we, we chase quote unquote high performance and in line of sight with, with medals as being a bit of a bit of a commodity here with, with team USA. But like, I think some of the, One of the athlete case studies I'm most proud of was an athlete who was a long shot to make the team, but did such a great job committing Mm -hmm. to your plan and had lost, uh, I believe it was 30 pounds in two years and just kind of went through a metamorphosis of what their body composition was. And not only did they make the team Mm -hmm. in Rio, but they went out. I made the final, which, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. we don't always celebrate that here at Team USA because we chase medals and high performance. But for that athlete, he committed to what high performance was for himself compared to what his process had been to that point. And I I just thought that was so cool. And then that athlete now was lean and was able to actually get out of his chair more often and start walking. Because he could start walking, he could hold a day job. And because he held a day job, mm-hmm. he could afford a car. And because he could afford a car, he, he got a girlfriend. You know, and like it's, yeah. uh, <laughs> it's, it's like I don't know. Just uh, that was fantastic. You know, so we, we can look at it from a sport performance yeah. standpoint, but also just a, a general health and, and lifestyle standpoint as well, too. And I think dietetics necessity hopefully are, are working on the same page towards those goals for those athletes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So any recommendations that you have for potential or new strength and conditioning coaches who are potentially interested in getting involved in para sport for,
1: for strength and conditioning specifically? Yeah. I, I think just being hopefully someone who's open-minded, <laughs> I think a lot of times in any career, but like in coaching, sometimes younger coaches, we, we see things black and white in mm. Paralympic sport. We live in gray. Like we're, we're somewhere in between that black and white at all times. And <laughs> in that area of gray, hopefully you can get comfortable with being uncomfortable because there's not always going to be a perfect solution to every problem that you're going to, or every challenge that you're going to come across, Mm -hmm. you know? So I would hope coaches would be open-minded. They would be patient. They would be adaptable. And I know that's kind of punny in a way because we're working with adaptive sport, but like (laughs) you need to be, you need need to not just have one hammer for every job. You need to have a a toolbox with a variety of tools that can help solve Mm. problems. If I just loved, weightlifting derivatives, Olympic weightlifting derivatives, well, that might be great for for a small percentage of the para-athletes I work for, but it's probably not gonna solve the solution for all of them. You know, if I'm working with mm-hmm. sport athletes, well, you might have to rethink that. Uh, also, too, I think the biggest thing is involving the athlete in the process. Like, I'm not living the disability that they have, they are and involving them in the process mm-hmm. of finding ways to get the job done whether it's adaptations modifications and or just feedback about how things feel i think they would be wise to consider the athlete's voice in that process empower them not enable them yes. but empower them to have a say in their process and understand what works best for them even if they don't have a mm-hmm. huge training history they they might have, let's say it was uh, something that happened at birth, you know, they, they might have years of experience of finding ways to create solutions mm-hmm. to problems. And if you don't involve them in that process, yeah. you're just missing out because they'll find a solution much quicker than you
0: will. Yep. Excellent. Well, Sam, I know you've got a busy schedule and I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but we always have to finish out with finding out something a little bit more personal about you. So what's your favorite food? My
1: favorite food. I think I got a problem, Liz, because any food on the plate is usually <laughs> my, my favorite food. I, I really enjoy, I'm, I'm from New England originally, Massachusetts specifically, and I love I love seafood and I love Italian style seafood dishes. And my wife has opened my eyes to taking time away from work over the years and specifically taking me to travel because it seems to be the one way I can truly disconnect <laughs> from work. Mm-hmm. And dishes along the Mediterranean coast are some of my favorite, whether it's from Italy or France. Nice mm-hmm. is kind of fun so you get a little bit of both. You know, those Mediterranean style dishes of seafood and Italian influence or French influence are, are top of the list for me.
0: Aha. Uh-huh. Wow. I'll have to remember that when I when you come over and visit me and we catch but, up. You
1: know, I, I say this it, you know, but I grew up on uh, you know, steak and potatoes and uh you know, just basics. But uh yeah, I I love I love all food, which is a problem, you know. I love animals that they're delicious. So yeah, it's uh yeah, not too picky, which can be a bit of a challenge.
0: Well, Sam, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Your expertise is I, I don't think there's anyone in this in this area who who has quite the level of expertise that you have and i really appreciate you sharing it with us and we look forward to seeing more more things to come from team USA well
1: thank you very much Liz and, and you were uh, you are an absolute rock star but you you were one of the, the best teammates <sighs> I've ever had and uh, I'm always happy to connect with you happy to have a chat I'm glad you have this this resource going for listeners i think hopefully it's going to be a great great value to them in general i uh, i appreciate you i'm, I'm grateful for you and, and all you you do and all you did so always happy to connect and thank you again for your time
0: i think sam's talked through a really great process of understanding the athlete and the sport first and foremost And working out what actually needs to be trained and how to prevent injuries in that process as a really important foundation for strength and conditioning, which I think also interplays with any form of coaching and any form of service provision for para-athletes. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please Leave a message for us in terms of any feedback that you have, any people that you'd like to hear from. We'd love to hear about who's listening to the podcast. I hope you join us next time when we talk to Carol Cook, who is a Paralympic cyclist, a trike rider with MS from Australia.